All right, if you want to turn in your Bibles to the book of Job as we begin another book study this evening, we continue our journey through the Old Testament together, and we now find ourselves starting the book of Job, and not only starting the book of Job, but we really start what to some degree is what would be considered a new section uh, in the Old Testament. As you work your way through the Old Testament, you can kind of categorize some of the different books the way they're put together. In the canon of Scripture, the 39 books of the Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, are often referred to as the books of the law or the Pentateuch. You may have heard it referred to that before. And then, of course, when you go from Joshua all the way through Esther, those are typically referred to as the historical books of the Old Testament. As we come now to Job, and Job basically all the way through the uh, Song of Solomon, so Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, these are often what are referred to as poetic books of the Bible. And, of course, when we say the word poetic books, understand Hebrew poetry is not the same as what we understand many in our uh, you know, kind of concepts of English poetry. It's not necessarily rhyming phrases and roses are red, violets are blue, so on and so forth. Uh, as much as it's typically putting together parallel thoughts, whether it's thoughts that reinforce one another. And you see this a lot more really in the book of Proverbs. You can really tell the way the Proverbs are laid out. Either you have contrasting thoughts uh, or you have comparing thoughts where basically one thought is stated and then it's stated again in another way. And so again, Hebrew poetry, not the same as English poetry as much as rhyming phrases and those kind of things, uh, but really kind of laid out in a different way. But these are what are referred to as the poetic books of the scripture. And then, of course, uh, once you get beyond Song of Solomon, then the remainder of the Old Testament, you have all the prophetic books the major prophets and the minor prophets, again, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, these are the major prophets, not because their message is major, but just the idea is that they're larger, and then when you get to the minor prophets, it's typically the smaller prophetic books at the end of the Old Testament, you know, Malachi and Habakkuk and Obadiah, those smaller books. So we now begin what are called the poetic books as we come to Job here. What's interesting about the book of Job, we'll take notice, from a setting and a time period, many believe that it could perhaps be uh, one of the oldest records and actually chronologically one of the oldest books that we actually have in the canon of the Old Testament and the Bible itself as a whole. As far as the setting, the only thing we really have record of in the scripture that predates what it seems we're reading here in the book of Job is probably the first, say, 10 or so chapters of the book of Genesis, from the creation account to the dynamics of Adam and Eve and the fall of man and the days of Noah and the flood. Uh, and many believe that the setting of Job's life in this time period falls certainly either in the patriarchal stage or even prior to that. So either right around the time of Abraham would Job have been living as well, or even potentially predating the time of Abraham. Uh, we believe that for a number of reasons. Um, one, you take notice in the book of Job that there's no references at all to things like uh, the Jews yet as a people group or the nation of Israel. There's no reference to uh, things like the law of Moses, no reference to the priesthood, no reference to the temple or the sacrificial system. We see that Job himself, we'll see in the first few verses, is actually the one offering sacrifices. Now, once the Mosaic priesthood uh, came about, and according to the law, only the priests and the Levites were to be involved offering sacrifices. But prior to that, we see Noah offering sacrifices. We see Abraham offering sacrifices as the spiritual patriarchs in their family. That was what was done prior to the time when the priesthood was instituted, uh, as well as we seem to kind of have an indication of the longevity of life to some degree still. When you get to chapter 42, it tells us at the end of the book of Job, in fact, I'll just read you the, the very last uh, statement or so as we get there, it tells us in Job 42, verse 16, after this, that's after all the events of the book, it says Job lived 140 years and saw his children and grandchildren for four generations. So 
depending upon how Job is at the beginning of the book and all the things that are going on, uh, again, if he's 50 years old, if he's 70 years old, some tend to think he was in that age range, you're adding another 140 years, which indicates that he lived 210 years or somewhere north of 200 years. So we still see the longevity of life. So it does seem probably maybe sometime around you know, the time right after the flood, around the time of Abraham is when Job was living. So it's kind of interesting. You see Job recognizing God as the Almighty and the Creator, but not yet so much recognizing him as Yahweh God, but yet knowing him and having a relationship with him. So it's quite interesting to, to take note of that and some of the things that we see kind of give us that setting there. Now, the theme, if you're obviously probably already not somewhat familiar with the book of Job and what it's all about, a couple of the themes we'll see as we go through this, of course, one predominant theme is, is processing suffering and adversity. Uh, and when suffering and adversity comes into our life, uh, a lot of times we process that in different ways. Other people come alongside, kind of like Job's friends will see Will, and they try and help us process our adversity, and sometimes they can be a blessing, and also, as we'll see, sometimes they can be a curse uh, and actually can be a, a detriment to us that make it more difficult for us when we're going through adversity. And sometimes, though, good intentions, and that's what Job's friends had, I believe, good intentions, but their good intentions to help somebody who were struggling actually ended up kind of getting in the way and backfiring to some degree. But Job, throughout the book, to some degree, on occasion, he and his friends will try and come up with the reason why for his suffering. Why is this happening? Why is God allowing this to happen? Why would God let something like this happen? They try and process all that. And you see by the end of the book that God never answers that question. God doesn't answer the why. What God does is shows them the what, which is basically that ultimately what Job needed was not more answers and clarity regarding why things were happening, but what he needed was a greater revelation of God in his life to be able to process the suffering and to deal with the adversity. And it wasn't so much about the temporal answers as much as it was about the eternal realities that Job discovered more about God and his nature through the process. And it's definitely one book that gives us a good reminder of the reality that as much as human beings, sometimes we want the answer why to our adversity or some maybe tragedy we might go through or some period of suffering, uh, that nowhere do we really see the Bible teaching that we are entitled to the answer why. Uh, God doesn't promise us that. Uh, but what God does assure to us is that when we enter into heaven in the book of Revelation around the throne of God, one of the repeated refrains that they are saying as they're worshiping God is righteous and true are all your ways. Meaning that when we get on the other side of the veil from the temporal to the eternal and we are in a glorified body with a perfect glorified mind and full understanding in God's presence that when we look to God in that spiritual eternal dimension, we will in a sense have every question answered at that moment. And we will find ourselves no longer with any hesitation, question, or even questioning God, but simply saying, God, everything you did, it actually was righteous. It actually was right. It didn't make sense on earth, but it all makes sense now. I see from your eternal perspective how that actually was righteous, even what you allowed and what unfolded, because we'll see that bigger picture, of course, from the way that God has seen things and how he works through humanity. Another theme we'll see in this book as well, in connection to kind of that, is that the reality that God's servants are not exempt from experiencing suffering or adversity. Now, unfortunately, the heretical teaching of what's considered prosperity gospel doctrine of that if you are godly or spiritual and there's no sin in your life, then you should be extremely healthy and never get sick and you should prosper and be wealthy, uh, which is a complete perversion of Scripture. And the book of Job is another reminder of how false that teaching and theology is. Because Job is the only one I see in the whole Bible that God actually brags about. God's bragging about him from heaven, uh, and he's the one son that God says, that is my, I am so proud of him, and his life experiences all kinds of pain and difficulty. Uh, so again, we should never think to some degree that if we serve God and if we are following the Lord, that somehow that makes us immune to sickness, cancer, suffering, or personal hardship on earth, or disappointments, or tragedies. That's not true. 
Jesus said that it rains on the just and the unjust. Uh, Everybody experiences storms. It's just part of living on a fallen earth where things are continually falling apart because of the curse of sin. And sometimes we'll also see that our hardships and sufferings actually have a higher purpose than just our personal maybe comfort or understanding. Job's going to, to some degree, be completely unaware, we'll see, that as he's processing suffering in his life and he's trying to figure it out with his friends, the reality is there is something going on in the spiritual and eternal dimension where God is showing things to Satan and to the angelic realm. Ephesians 3 says that sometimes things that happen on this earth are actually a testimony to the angelic beings, that sometimes God will allow events to unfold on the earth to teach lessons to the angelic realm about himself and about humanity in the midst of those things. And, and sometimes when we're enduring things personally, we need to recognize that sometimes there is a bigger picture than just ourselves. Now, because we experience it, we, we want to kind of funnel it in that there's got to be a reason for this personally, but sometimes God may just be allowing things and it's a part of a bigger picture of something that God's doing. Maybe even to use us to, you know, be able to be able to facilitate comfort to someone else. And Paul says that in Second Corinthians chapter one, that you know the, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort comforts us in our tribulations, so that we're able to comfort others with the comfort whereby we ourselves have received from God. And I think all of us know that to some degree. That when you've experienced something, then you can actually minister to someone in a way that's not just kind of theoretical and you can say the right stuff, but you actually can kind of, you know, connect. You know, nobody can minister to a cancer patient, right, better than a cancer patient uh, because there's that level of understanding. And so sometimes God has bigger purposes than what we're enduring personally, just being about us alone. And the final thing I would say is this, as far as a theme, is the book of Job teaches us, and Job himself as an exemplary example, is that God is worthy of worship even when life is bad. That even when we may be suffering, when life may be painful or hard for us, or it may not be the way we want it to be circumstantially on this earth or in our own personal life experience, that God is always still worthy of worship. And worship of God should never be dependent upon circumstances. And Job's a great testimony to that reality. That's one of the things that God was trying to prove really to Satan as well, that he would still be worshipped by Job, even though Job's life was going through difficulties. And we see that laid out for us in the great example of Job himself. So with that said, let's jump in as we look in chapter 1. It begins by telling us there was a man... In the land of Uz, now we don't know exactly where that is, somewhere south-southeast of the uh, area of the Dead Sea. Many believe uh, that's where it's at, but we can't be certain. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and here we get a little description of his character. It says, that man was blameless, upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. So we're told of Job that he was quite a man of character it says of him that he was blameless now the word blameless does not mean sinless so don't let your mind go there because the bible is clear there's no one who's sinless job was not uh, someone who didn't have struggles with sin he was a human being just like you and i so job had his own wrestlings with sin the idea of blameless uh, gives the indication of someone who's not guilty for something that they're currently involved in The idea is there wasn't anything evident in his life that you could try and cast blame on him for that would stick. So if people were to say, hey, he he can be blamed for this, the idea is he was living a life of integrity. And there wasn't something he was directly involved in that he was guilty of doing, some kind of hidden sin going on in his private life. He was just a blameless man. He was living in a way that was honoring God, not that he was perfect by any means, but he wasn't involved in sinful practices. And he was upright, and that speaks of how he was living among fellow man, that he was living in an upright way. The idea is he wasn't crooked or perverse in some of the ways he would interact with people. And he was one who feared God, that is, he had a a respect for God. He, He recognized God's authority, and he had a reverence towards God. And because of that, because he was in right relationship with God, notice it says he shunned evil. The idea is he abstained from participating in the evil practices that were going on around him. 
that no doubt he was tempted by just like everybody else. And again, if we put the, the life and time period of Job somewhere in accordance with the time of the flood and Noah's days, uh, we remember what it was like, right? Genesis chapter six, before God brought the flood upon the earth. This is that wickedness was great upon the earth. But Job was someone who in the midst of a very wicked time period when men were evil on the earth, uh, he was abstaining from evil. He was shunning those things because he feared God and he wanted to live in an upright way that honored and pleased the Lord. And God takes note of that. We'll see as he begins to speak about Job in the next few verses. So verse two then tells us a little bit about Job's life further regarding his family. It says he had seven sons and three daughters which were born to him. And again, keep in mind in that culture, in the Eastern culture and certainly ancient culture, children were considered as a blessing and as a privilege and an honor from the Lord. Uh, it was considered to be a demonstration of God's blessing to have many children. And so this is just speaking again of you know, seven sons, three daughters had been born to him. Verse three says, and also notice his possessions. So now this speaks of his wealth. Were seven thousand sheep if you had seven sheep you were you were doing pretty good this man had seven thousand sheep three thousand camels 500 yoke of oxen 500 female donkeys and a very large household so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the east so what the bible's speaking of there is the reality is that job was a very wealthy man he was very prosperous he had a large household, we'll see, that, that took servants actually to run it. He had a tremendous amount uh, of animals. So again, whether it was uh, sheep or camels or yoke of oxen, the idea is he had large herds. And, and this is an indication in that culture, your wealth wasn't measured by gold and silver. Your wealth was measured by those kinds of things having a massive amount of, of animals and, and to be able to, to work with those things and to utilize them. So this just speaks of how Job, not only was he wealthy, but his wealth and his greatness you know, was kind of known among all the people. It says he was the greatest among the people of the East. Again, so he might be kind of like today, we'd you know, talk about whoever the you know, wealthy people would be today, the big names that come to your mind, like, like Bill Gates or what's the Amazon guy, Bezos or... Right. I mean, so th this is kind of like what Job was in that culture. And, and to me, I find this very beautiful as well, because keep in mind, Job is incredibly wealthy and he's a godly man. He is someone who is God has chosen to prosper him. He's done really well. And he also loves the Lord. And he's a very godly man. It says he's blameless and upright. He's not crooked. He, he's a godly man. And he's wealthy at the same time. And I think that's a beautiful thing because sometimes we can almost tend to equate spirituality and poverty all the time. You know, and, and we, we kind of have this tendency that if somebody's rich, they have to be corrupt. That if somebody actually has wealth or they start to accrue wealth, well, that's it. You know, love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Well, the Bible says the love of money. I don't say money is the root of all kinds of evil. And we see plenty of people in the scriptures, Abraham, Job, David, Solomon, they were godly people who loved the Lord, and yet they were wealthy. Now, by the same token, in the same way that you can be wealthy and be godly, there's nothing more spiritual about being poor. <laughs> and sometimes I almost feel like among the church, we can tend to do that. It's almost like it's, it's more spiritual to be poor. You know, we, it's like, we, let's, let's put them through poverty. That'll really make them spiritual. And, and, and we almost equate somehow that that's more spiritual. Uh, neither one is. Uh, there is going to always be poor and rich. Jesus said the poor you'll have among you always. Uh, and that's not how God equates what's spiritual. You can be wealthy and godly. You can be poor and godly. You can be wealthy and corrupt, or you can be poor and completely a corrupt person. What matters is the attitude of your heart condition above all else. And verse 4 tells us his sons would also go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And so it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, 
It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, Job did regularly. So here we get some insight into his family life. Not only was he a godly man who feared God, shunned evil, lived blameless, he was upright. God had prospered him. He, you know, done well in a sense in his personal prosperity, in his business life. But the guy had a really solid family life too. Notice he has 10 children. And the beautiful thing to see is, and they all seem to be at adult age at this point because they all have their own houses. Verse four says they would go and feast in each other's houses at the appointed day. Now, whether that's like, you know, the appointed day on their birthday, they would host a feast or whether it was just kind of like a dynamic where they took turns on a rotation, the 10 of them, you know, and every 10 Sundays they would go to somebody else's house for dinner kind of a thing. But the beautiful thing is to see he had raised seven sons and three daughters and they all liked each other. That shows a pretty functional to some degree family. You know, a lot of families, you have three kids and there can be dysfunction even among three children let alone 10 children, all 10 children and all 10 of his children to some degree, not only seem to love the Lord like their father potentially, but more than that, they love each other. And they act, they're actually a nice knit family. They actually spend time together. They're adults and they want to get together for dinner. <laughs> they want to spend time together. They actually enjoy the relationships that they have with each other. And to me, that's a real testament to parenting there. A real testament to good, solid parenting to raise a family dynamic where, again, kids are kids and brothers and sisters have their issues. But the idea there is they actually like each other and they want to spend time with one another. And there's a level of commitment, not this, you know, total wedge of separation and one hates the other. And again, to me, that's a testimony of good fathering there, a testimony of good parenting, that there's actually a friendship dynamic that exists among the kids, potentially because of the contribution of Job and his wife and how they were raised, that they spent that time together. And verse five tells us as well of Job's spiritual kind of, you know, heart towards his children, that that mattered to him more than else. Because it says when they would get together, that verse five says that Job would, on occasion, whenever they gathered, he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings. Again, take notice, he wouldn't be doing that if there was a priesthood at this time. But as the spiritual patriarch in his family, that's who would provide the offerings and lead the worship among the households. He was the spiritual patriarch among the family. And so Job here, we kind of see him in the sense of intercession. It says he would rise early and offer burnt offerings on behalf of his children, saying, it may be that one of my sons, maybe, maybe they got a little carried away and they cursed God in their hearts. And so Job was concerned that their spiritual lives wouldn't digress into sinful living so he would in an intercessory way offer these offerings on their behalf as kind of the spiritual patriarch of the family and what a beautiful picture here of job as a a good solid spiritual leader among his family here kind of carrying out that spiritual patriarchal role in his household that he he sought to put the things of god and make sure that his family was on track spiritually Again, even in the days of, it seems, his kids' adults' lives, that, that basically uh, he's, in a sense, we might say, like we today might intercede in prayer. Lord, they're adults now, and they're having their own feasts, and I don't know what they're doing in their houses, but just in case they're blowing it, God. <laughs> God, I'm standing in the gap here on their behalf, and in case one of them's cursing you in their heart, Lord, please turn them back on track. And, and again, just a beautiful thing to see that Job operates in this way, making these offerings here. And he's a father who's concerned about his family's spiritual condition foremost. And I like this. More than anything else, apparently what mattered to Job was that his family, his sons, his daughters were on track spiritually. It wasn't about, okay, are they getting a really good education? What institution can we get them into? And I want to make sure that they're you know, going to get a great career and, and be successful and they'll never have to come back home. In fact, they can take care of me. They'll get so rich. That wasn't his highest priority. Job's highest priority was to me, when I look at that, a man who kind of in a sense, was like, I don't care if you're herding sheep. I don't care if you're working at the, you know, us Walmart. I don't care. I don't care what you're doing. But what I do care about is that you're walking with God. And that you're doing okay with God. Because all those other things are, are kind of the secondary non-essential things. 
And to me, this is beautiful. And I think it should be a great reminder to anyone, certainly, who's a parent, that that's where the primary focus should be in raising our children to adulthood. And you know what? Even after adulthood, when we just kind of become their counselors and those who can pray for them, that that would be our foremost concern. God, I don't care about this or that. I just keep them walking with you. Keep them out of moral failure and things that are going to ruin their lives and put that emphasis there. You know, would to God that more even in the church today as Christian parents would have that heart as they're raising their children because the American culture wants to tell parents to put all these other things as the priority. You know, he's got to get to the NFL or make sure he's the best in the midget league football. Or, and, and there's all these other things that are kind of pressed upon parents as most important. And they got to be in at least seven activities a week. And there's all these other dynamics. Make, sure make sure they're in the top of their class. Make sure they're taking those. I don't even know what they are because I don't think my kids took them. Did they? The highest classes. APs, right, or whatever they are. It's just, it, it, apple don't far, far from the tree, as you can tell. But the, And we have all these other things we want to put upon our children. And Job, to me, is a great reminder of, you know what? If God gives you those kind of things, great. But if you walk with God, that's what's going to make me most proud. And that's what's going to make you be the greatest blessing in the community and, and really have the most blessed life. And we see that in regards to Job and his own life, a great example of that. Now, as we come to verse 6, we start to see the calamity in Job's life unfold. So here he's got this great life. He loves the Lord. He's a faithful, godly man. He's got a good, solid family. He's prospering. I mean, just everything, to some degree, is wonderful. And Job has built this wonderful life. And then we come to verse 6, and it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. Now, when it tells us verse 6, the sons of God came, that's a reference there to the angelic beings. We see that term used in Genesis chapter 6 and a few other occasions. And the idea of sons of God as a reference to the angelic beings there is, is those created by God. All of the angels were a part of God's creation. And we see this term used periodically in the Bible as reference to the angels. And we can tell as well, contextually, that's what it's meant to refer to because it says that Satan came together with the sons of God, together with these angelic spirits. And we know that's exactly what Satan is, that he was a created angelic being who chose to rebel and fall against God. So at this point now, it seems that as they're kind of coming before God's throne, they're reporting in, you know, angels were created, it says, to be ministering spirits, to do God's work and to minister the good angels, the holy angels that exist still, to function on behalf of God's people. And so they're kind of coming in, reporting for duty, and lo and behold, here comes Satan. Now at this point, Satan obviously is in his fallen condition. And again, remember, if you're not familiar, you might want to jot down Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28, because these are two chapters that tell us about Satan's background. That at one point, he was a very high-ranking, powerful holy, angelic being, but yet Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 tell us that his heart became puffed up with pride and he wanted to exert his own will over God's will and he wanted to be exalted and even worshiped like God and because of the sinful pride and what developed in his heart, he ended up actually being judged by God and cast down from this position. And then, of course, he became an unclean spirit, a demonic spirit, a fallen angel. And it says as well, Revelation 12, that he drew one third of the angelic realm with him, which have now become his demons or demonic forces that function in cooperation with him. So understand, when you talk about the term angel, you always want to make sure you realize that there are holy angels that do God's bidding and are submitted to God's work. And then there are fallen angelic spirits like Satan and the demonic spirits uh, that exist as well that are operating in rebellion to God and trying to destroy humanity. So here at this point, Satan obviously is in his fallen condition. The word Satan literally just means accuser or adversary. And that's exactly how he functions against humanity. Revelation chapter 12 says that he is the accuser of the brethren and that one of his functions is is that he accuses us night and day before the Lord, it seems, to some degree. So if you struggle in your mind at times with condemning accusatory thoughts and feeling horrible about yourself and beat up and all those kind of things, well, well guess where that voice is coming from? 
the Bible tells us that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. God may speak conviction and want to correct us when we're wrong, but condemnation and accusation, whether it's coming from your own mind or people being very accusatory and, and, and critical and nasty, that, that stems right from the devil himself because that's how he operates. He's the accuser of the brethren. Oh, do you see what he's doing? Do you see what she's still doing? And, and they claim to be a Christian, and, and this is what the devil does. And so here the devil comes in, again, this function of being accusatory. And keep in mind, as the Bible shows, it seems until other things unfold, and the book of Revelation describes, for a time period, the devil, though being cast out of his heavenly position, of rulership in a high-ranking role, he still has a tremendous amount not only of authority, the Bible calls him the god of this age, the world lies under the sway of the wicked one, but he still has access to go before the throne of God to some degree. Ultimately, he'll be cast down completely. We'll, we'll see that later on. But in this time period, he still apparently to some degree, we find him here reporting together with the other angels. And as he comes before God's presence, which reminds us he's still under God's authority. He's, he's not God's equal. Always have that idea in your mind. He is not God's arch enemy like, you know, Batman and Joker. Uh, that, that's not the, God created Satan. And Satan rebelled against God and God cast him out of his position and stripped him of his role. But he does still have tremendous authority, much more power and authority than we do as human beings, especially apart from the power and authority of Christ being at work in our lives. So Satan comes before God and it says, verse seven, notice, not did Satan bring up the subject, but the Lord. Oh, Lord, what'd you have to do that for? It says, the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? In other words, what have you been up to? Now, it's not because God didn't know that. God knows everything. The idea here is to reveal to Satan, to reveal to the reader and who this record would be given to, uh, that we would come to understand what he had been occupied doing. So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it. Again, the idea is I've been occupied traveling around the earth. The language that's used there in the Hebrew indicates the idea of walking to and fro like you would walk a property to claim your ownership over it. And that makes total sense because Jesus said that Satan himself currently has a degree of rulership over the world system in its fallen condition. Paul calls him in Corinthians the God of this age. Jesus calls him the ruler of this present world. First John says that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one the God of this age. The idea is, and Ephesians 2 speaks of the same as well, that the devil has some degree of authority and rulership over the system of the world. That is the ideologies and ideas. There is a spiritual undercurrent that's invisible that's happening among the world, and the devil is the one directing that, and especially directing that as long as a person is outside of submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. When you come into relationship with Christ, you're set free from that power. And at that point, you're transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And you come under the rulership of Christ who has ultimate authority over all things. But here, Satan, he's traveling around. This reminds us of 1 Peter chapter 5, where it says to be sober and vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. So this is what the devil's doing. He's not omnipresent, but he does travel to and fro looking for, for victims, if you would, to try and destroy their lives. And of course, his demons function in that role with him. So the Lord asks him, he gets that response. That's what he's currently occupied doing now, traveling around. And then the Lord said to Satan, well, I know what you're doing down there, walking around. This shows you that God is omniscient. So God brings up exactly what God knew he was doing, going around, checking out people and scrutinizing what's going on in different lives. So he says, well, I know what you're doing. So he says, let me propose something to you. He says, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? When I look at verse 8 there, I'll tell you, you want to talk about God bragging on somebody? I mean, what might God say about us? Not that I want God to bring up my name in a conversation before Satan, if I can skip that part. 
But nonetheless, what God has to say from his perspective about Job, I mean, that's tremendous. That God would look down upon humanity and say, hey, I, I can tell you're looking probably for somebody to test next. And he says, how about if I propose somebody? Since I'm in control of everything and I have ultimate authority. And, and so he says, have you, have you taken into consideration my, my servant Job? He says of him, I have no one on earth like him. Man, that is a stellar commendation coming from God. I wonder if people thought that highly of Job, but God did. And what really matters is what does God think of us? He says he's a blameless and upright man. He fears me and he shuns evil. And God took notice of that. God was very proud. If you was like the father bragging on a son here, he's bragging on Job. What an amazing thing. Would to God that he would have reason to brag upon us a little bit among the angelic. Do you see what he's doing down there? Do you see how much she loves me and how she honors me? And I mean, would to God that that would be to some degree a part of our lives. How wonderful that we'd be making our father proud. And he says to Job, have you considered him as my servant? The word considered there is actually a Hebrew term that speaks of how a spy would study for a strategic purpose the enemy to launch an attack against them. So he says, have you strategically considered your attack and how it would line up if you launched it against my servant Job? So again, this reminds us as well of God not only being aware of what Satan's doing, but it gives us an indication of what Satan does, that he travels around and he does, if you would, intelligence work upon us. He watches what we do. He pays attention to what things we are more inclined towards. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know all things. He doesn't have the capacity of God, but he does study our lives like a military spy. And he looks for, hey, where's an area of weakness there where I could really launch an attack? And he'll patiently gathers intelligence before he launches his attacks. And he pays attention to exactly what attacks might work and what might not work. So God uses that term. Have you, have you considered him? Have you scrutinized his life a little bit? God says, this is what I see about his life. So Satan answers the Lord, verse 9, and said, does Job fear God for nothing? Notice automatically, what's he doing? Accusation. Well, of course he fears you, but don't you realize there's a reason why he fears you? He's not really a faithful man. You don't really think that he just loves you for you. You don't really think that he's godly and committed to you just because of who you are, there's a reason behind that. Again, he's launching accusations, questioning Job's loyalty and devotion to God. Does he fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him? The idea is a a, a protective barrier around him and around all his household and all that he has on every side. You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. And he will surely curse you to your face. So Job says, look, of course he serves you, but I mean, the guy's just a mercenary. The only reason he serves you and is so faithful to you is because all the ways that you bless him, that you protect him and you preserve him and that you've blessed him and blessed his household and you've enriched him. And so, of course, he serves you. It's it's like you know, putting a coin in the machine to be able to get the jukebox to do what you want. So Job's just, he keeps putting coins in the machine on a divine level because you keep blessing him and doing good things for him. So he says, he's only serving you for the blessings. He don't serve you for you. He just serves you for what he can get out of you. And so he's questioning Job's commitment to God. But he says, look, stretch out your hand, verse 11. He says, why don't you touch all that he has? Take away his stuff. Take away his blessings. Take away that which is important and valuable in his life. And he says, and he will curse you to your face. You take away what's temporal and in his life that's important to him, and he will turn on you as quick as possible. Because the only reason he serves you, he's saying, God, is because of the good things that you've blessed him with. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now take notice. Satan had to get permission to be able to have any access to Job because God did put a hedge around him as his son. He had to ask permission, and God says, okay, I'll allow you. Now, it's hard to read that, but God's doing it in his sovereignty. I will allow you some access 
to, in a sense, attack his life a little bit. I'll allow you some access to bring some difficulty and hardship into his life. I'll give you a measure of access into my servant's life, but it had to be granted by God's permission. That reminds us of two things. One, that God alone is the one who is preserving our lives from being a whole lot worse than they really would be. You know, a lot of times we don't think about that. Our life could be way worse and the devil could have way more reign to bring destruction into our lives if it weren't for God's preservation and hedge of protection. God is often protecting and preserving us in ways we have no comprehension about. And so God's restraining evil and restraining things, and we're getting the restrained version. But also it shows us that, again, that the devil has no freedom to do anything in my life or your life as God's servant other than what God grants him permission to have access to. And so we can trust God and his wisdom. God, if you've allowed the devil to come against my life or to attack me in spiritual warfare, I can know that this is something you're permitting, that you're allowing. And maybe it's a way for, again, some heavenly purpose to be accomplished or for me to grow spiritually or to deepen in my walk with the Lord. And of course, we know Ephesians 6, that spiritual warfare is a part of the life of the follower of the Lord. And the same was true for Job here. Now, keep in mind, Job's not reading the story. Job has no idea what's going on this conversation in heaven. He's just down on earth, doing his thing, loving his family, enjoying, enjoying his life. And he has no idea this conversation is going on between the Lord and Satan, saying, you want to test that this guy's committed to me? And God's saying, I know he's committed to me. I'll put my bank on Job. He will not do that. And Satan's saying, oh, watch, I'll prove it to you. So God says, okay, you're on. I know my servant better than you do. I'm going to let you bring some difficulty and hardship into his life to prove to you that he will worship me even if life gets hard, even if life gets very difficult. So Satan now walks out with this freedom. Verse 13 says, Now there was a day when the sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and when the Sabaeans raided them and took them away, and they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Now watch the repetitious language. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, the fire of God, it says, fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Now isn't it interesting? They refer, which probably was maybe like a lightning strike or something, and, and it says they call it the fire of God. Again, w- was it a lightning strike potentially? Was it a what we might refer to as a natural disaster? And what do we always call natural disasters? Oh, that's an act of God. This isn't an act of God. This is actually an act of Satan. This is actually the devil himself bringing all this pain and destruction and devastation. I think we need to be careful all the time when we automatically assume some natural disaster is always just an act of God, some tornado or some horrible thing. Well, if Satan has rulership over the present earth and the system of this earth, uh, sometimes we need to be careful who we put the blame on. But they're blaming God. It was, it was the fire of God. It came down. While he was still speaking, verse 17, another also came and said the Chaldeans formed three bands and they raided the camels and took them away. Yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, verse 18, another also came and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came. So now this is like a, a, you know, a, a hurricane type wind comes and look what it did. It came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they are dead and I alone have escaped to tell you. Now keep in mind what goes on here. In one day, this is all one day. Had a bad day? In one day, he loses all of his wealth his business fails. He was, and he wasn't just moderately, but this was a wealthy, wealthy man. And one day he loses everything financially. He loses all his servants, who he probably had an attachment to. Many of them have been killed and put to death. And on top of it, he doesn't lose a child. 
he loses 10 children in one day. I mean, we can't weigh out the gravity of the pain that it causes a parent, the most difficult form of death, to lose a child. He lost all 10 of his children in one day. And the guy's done nothing wrong. You, you, you can't, oh, well, that's happened in your life because there's sin in your life or you're not right with God somehow. That's what his friends are going to try and tell him. God's in heaven bragging about him. This isn't God punishing him. This, isn't, this is something completely contrary to that. And in one day, catastrophe strikes. A complete tragedy, a tremendous painful hardship comes into his life and all of it comes crashing down in one day. His whole world falls apart. Now, I look at this story as well, and of course, we'll see when we get to chapter two, then the devil starts attacking his health and other things, you know, his marriage, his family life. Do you see how crazy the devil is? I mean, God gives the devil a little bit of leash, and look what he does to a good man in one day, one day. People want to act chum chummy. I can't wait to get down to the, to the, you know, to hell, and I'm going to party with the devil. And he just, well, people have no clue. I don't need God in my life. What do I need God for? I just. Do you realize the ultimatum? Do we realize how diabolical and wicked and evil and destructive? No wonder Jesus said that the devil is the father of lies, and when he lies, he speaks his native language. And that Jesus says that he's been a murderer from the beginning and that he only comes to rob and kill and destroy. That's, this is the agenda of Satan in the world against God's people. And again, when, when he operates, look what he does in one day. I mean, that should be a sobering reminder of how destructive and wicked the intentions of the devil are. And when we see the devil working and having sway and influence over this world system, are we surprised that we see things that cause us shock and chagrin and the you know, evil and the things that go on in our world? Well, what do you think the source of that is? I can tell you it's spiritual. It's a spiritual undercurrent. It's the devil operating in the way he was, whether it's sending the Sabaeans or the things. That, the devil was the one manipulating behind the scenes and influencing all the destructive, horrific things that were happening. We need to recognize what the true enemy is so often in things so that we respond properly and realize it's a spiritual battle and that's the foremost problem. And again, all this is happening to Job. He's just had this tremendous loss. Now, this is the unusual thing. Verse 20, then Job arose, tore his robe, that's understandable, like rending your heart, just ripped apart, shaved his head, fell on the ground and started blaming God in anger for everything that he did wrong in his life. doesn't say that. It says Job tore his robe, fell to the ground, and he worshipped. How did he process his pain? How did he process a tragedy, a catastrophe, loss, the most difficult day in his entire life? He worshipped his way through the pain. He worshipped his way through processing the tragedy and dealing with the hardship. I mean, you want to talk about a lot that he's got to process now? Him and his wife just lost all 10 sons. They lost all their money. They lost everything. That's going to be a lot to process. And he began the process by saying, I have got to, I've got to just humble myself before God and just worship and just turn to the Lord. And Job declared as he's worshiping, verse 21, naked I came from my mother's womb. And naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So he says, this is what I do understand. I don't understand why this happened. And, and, and I, this is incomprehensible. But what he said, I do know is this, is I came into this world with absolutely nothing. That's how I was born. And he said, and I understand that when life is over and you die, you take nothing with you. You come out of the womb naked and empty-handed, and at least on the way out, if you have a nice family and they bury you rather than choose to cremate you, they put you in your best outfit. That's about the best you get. But you leave earth with nothing again. 
So anything you get between or have between, Job says, that's just a blessing. But it all comes from God. That God, Whatever God gives you, God allows you to experience in this life, but it's just temporary. You don't get to keep it or bring it with you. And it's what's eternal that matters and not what's temporal material that matters. And Job was able to process this whole thing of even great loss by saying, look, I started with nothing. I'm not entitled to anything. Boy, would to God if we could get that through our heads. It would help us so much as human beings, wouldn't it? That we're not really entitled to anything. The breath in our lungs, that, that's all we get. And, and so Job says the Lord gave, and since he's the one who gives us everything, it is completely his prerogative if he chooses to take anything away or out of our lives. Now, it may be hard, painful. We may not understand it. Is the source satanic? Is it, is it you know, something God in his sovereignty allowed to have? At the end of the day, Job just rested in God's sovereignty. And he says, God has that prerogative because nothing's really mine. Everything, people in my life, possessions in my life, wealth, prosperity, position, it all belongs to God. He can give and he can take away. And Job processed that because he was worshiping and looking to God. Therefore, in verse 22, it concludes saying, and in all this, notice Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. That's what we want to do when the hardship happens. If we worship and if we humble ourselves and we look to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't understand it. I, I don't know how I'm, I'm going to be able to understand it, but I know that you are good, that you are righteous, that you are holy, that you love me and that you're an all wise God and your ways are higher than my ways. So therefore, Lord, I worship you and you can give and you can take away. And yet I will continue to just say, blessed be your name, Lord. You're still worthy of being worshiped. And Job shows here rather than sin when we're suffering and charge God wrongly, it is better to just seek the Lord in the midst of our suffering and to continue to keep worshiping him and to just kind of relinquish answers and to let go of those things and not torture our self-worth. It's interesting. You see Job doing this now. Once he and his friends start trying to dialogue in chapter three and figure out why and the reasons behind it, everything goes downhill for Job. Job's doing much better in chapter one and two when all he's doing is just worshiping and saying, blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Lord, I just worship you. This is when he's doing better. It's when he starts over trying to think everything through. That's when the devil, I think, just manipulates and tortures him even worse than some of the things that he's going through here. What a great example Job gives to us that God is always worthy to be worshiped even when life is bad. And God proves that to the devil. And God says, see, there are people who will worship me even when they're suffering. Because I am worthy of worship and the devil is a liar, God would say. Let's stand together. Let's